The following program is brought to you by Blood, Sweat, Tears, and listeners like you. To support this show and all of the shows within Twib Nation, consider becoming a subscriber of our pay service, The Twibularity, at twib.me forward slash subscribe. That's twib.me forward slash subscribe. Or you can give a one-time donation at donate.twib.me. That's donate.twib.me. We've all learned how important media is and who tells our stories. Help us be the media that you want to hear and that the media is afraid to hear. It's kind of hard to listen to yourself become irrelevant. You are now listening to Twib FM. Real talk, real awesome. Finally, I'm finally free. Finally, I'm finally me. Finally, I'm finally free. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Thank you guys for tuning in. Tonight is a special night for comic book fans everywhere, especially if you're a Batman fan as well. We have DC Comics editor Joseph Philip Illich on the show. He is the former um, editor, rather, for DC Comics line of Batman, and he's also an entrepreneur. He's worked with Milestone. He's an author. He wears many, many hats, and we're going to go into all of those details later on in the show and in our interview. Uh, and we also have our lovely guest, Grace Gibson, with us, co-hosting. So thank you for coming on. Yes, welcome. Yes. <laughs> so um, before we get to our guests, um, first of all, just want to make a couple of announcements. You can follow along with us. Use the hashtag BGM podcast that puts you into the feed with other live listeners. Feel free to ask any questions that you have for Joseph Illich tonight. And if you want to leave any comments, that way you can participate with other listeners. And on listen.twib.fm, that's where we are live streaming this. There's a chat room in there. Feel free to converse with other Twib users there as well. So um, Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we have a new podcast. It's actually in um, partnership with at Hugh Golden on Twitter, Ebony. Um, thank you for starting this. You know, guys, tonight is the season five premiere of Game of Thrones. Of course, yes. you guys all know that. <laughs> so Dim Thrones, by the way, is a hashtag. Please make sure to use that tonight so that way you can live tweet with us um, on Twitter. But we also do a um, podcast where we're discussing the book. So if you are a fan of the book, you read the whole series, or even if you're in a few books, uh, join us Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. It's called Blurred's Landing. So you can use that hashtag, and that will put you into the feed where you can converse with us, and we're going to talk about Game of Thrones. We're actually on book one. And next, or this Wednesday coming up, we're going to talk about season five recap. So we're going to do a recap about the show. Um, so just use the hashtag. We use TalkShoe Radio um, as a means of uh, listening live. I don't have the link because the link is like 20 characters long with symbols and question marks and all that in there. But if you use the hashtag Blurred's Landing, um, you'll find it and uh, bookmark that so that way you can tune in live with us at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. And thank you to Ebony at Hugh Golden on Twitter for starting that. All right. And then support us, guys. We would love your support in any capacity. Financially is nice as well. So if you go to blackgirlnerds.com on the right sidebar, there's a donate button. 
Um, if you're feeling charitable, feel free to donate and uh, help us out. It does go a long way. And we do have merchandise as well. So you can purchase T-shirts, coffee mugs, tote bags. Go to Zazzle.com forward slash Blurredgasm where you can purchase your merchandise there and show off your BGN swag. And thank you to all who have supported us um, throughout the years and continue to support us each and every day. So thank you for that. All right, so I'm going to introduce our guest, Joseph Philip Illage. And, oh, I completely forgot. Let me introduce our co-host, um, Grace. <laughs> I totally skipped over you tonight. It's um, okay. It's okay. <laughs> I'm just glad um, to be here right now. That's all. <laughs> I know, right? This is what happens when I get really nervous when we have a really great guest. So, um, yes, Grace, introduce yourself to everybody. Um, let us know what current projects you're on and your social media shout-outs. All right. So, uh, as she said, I'm Grace Gibson. I am live and direct from Oakland, California, and uh, I am a current grad student, doctoral student at UC Berkeley, and I get to do research on comics. Like, how cool is that? So, um, and that is my current project and ongoing current project. So that's, that's kind of what I do. You can find me on Twitter at gbreezy20, and you can also check me out on Black Girl Nerds as well as on Black Savant Cinema. So, uh, my own little blog that I have as well. So, um, and you can also catch me on Black Comics Chat as well, too, twice a month. So, um, yeah, it's just exciting. It's fun. Um, and I get to sit in and talk to Joseph Philip Illage, and this is going to be, like, grand. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to it. <laughs> yes, and um, Black Comics Chat is a really great um, way to network with other comic book artists, other comic book geeks and fans. Um, and Joseph's been on that as well. So check out that hashtag because um, Black Comics Chat is really growing, and, and we definitely would love your support. All right, so Joseph Philip Illage, he started his editorial career at Milestone Media Inc., the first black-owned mainstream comic book company, and the creators of Static Shock, the award-winning Warner Brothers cartoon. His experience with Static Shock animated series led Joseph to become the DC Entertainment Liaison with WB Animation for the critically acclaimed Batman Beyond animated series. Joseph was the first black man to become an editor of the Batman line of comic books for DC Entertainment. And his story development, project management, and editorial guidance during the year-long event Batman No Man's Land and Batman Linewide relaunch reestablished the Batman as DC Entertainment's top-selling character. Joseph's editorial tenure of the Batman comics line included the introduction of Detective Crispus Allen, appearing in the Fox TV show Gotham, and the female vigilantes Black Canary and Huntress appearing on the top-rated CW series Arrow. Joseph's contributions continue to earn millions of dollars for Time Warner through DC Entertainment Library of Movies, TV, Animation, Licensed Product, and Online Content, including the rebooted films Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. Joseph's next project is The Wren, a 200-plus page graphic novel about a love affair between teenage artists during the height of the Harlem Renaissance. The Wren will be published by First Second Books, a division of Macmillan. And Joseph is also a columnist for Comic Book Resources with his editorial called The Color Barrier. Thank you, Joseph, for coming on the show. Thank you, Jamie and Grace, for having me. And I feel like I'm Grace's wingman tonight. So what I do is basically, <laughs> oh my God, no. it's, it's just, it's just going to be the back Grace up. 
Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. It, it's, a, it's the least I could do. It's the same way that Sir Francis Walsingham backed up Queen Elizabeth. I'm going to back you up. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. No problem. So let me get started here. Um, when did you first get interested in comics, and what was it specifically about them that piqued your interest? Um, it goes back to when I was a kid. When I was in the second grade, every Friday, my mom would take me to the newsstand, and she would buy soap opera magazines, and she would buy me comic books. Mm-hmm. So in addition to knowing the names of every member of the Legion of Superheroes, I knew the names of the actresses and actors on some of the most popular soap operas of the time, like All My Children and One Life to Live in General Hospital and things of that nature. So I was getting comics from then, and my dad, God rest his soul, he was a big fan of Jonah Hex, Scalp Hunter, Sergeant Rock, and Deathlock. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of came from that background. So I was a DC head up until the fourth grade when... I went to the Bahamas during the summer to visit family there. I did that a lot when I was a kid. And my aunt, just out of the blue, brought me six comic books. And one of them was Uncanny X-Men 112, Mm. which was a Chris Claremont, John Byrne, Terry Austin. And it had a cover by George Perez. And it said Magneto Triumphant. And that was it. And then I was in the fourth grade, no, fifth grade. And I knew this guy named Vincent. And Vincent said, I'm going to get all the Avengers comics. And like in a month, this dude had like 40 Avengers comics. And I said, well, I'm going to get um, 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 X-Men. And so I made it my mission to like get as many X-Men comics as I could. And at that time, that's when Marvel had me, hook, line, and sinker, because, Mm. I mean, the X-Men were great. They had powers. They lived in a big house. Jean Grey and Scott Summers were having sex on mountains. I was like, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm like, this is a great comic book. And I didn't even know what sex was yet, but I knew they were having fun. So right. I was like, okay, these people are cool. They're better than Superman and Wonder Woman. So mm. I'm going to stick in the Marvel Universe. And I've kind of gone back and forth, but it really goes back to when I was a kid. And, you know, you just love those larger-than-life stories, and between Marvel and DC, you know, you just had so many different options of different kinds of heroes, so just love comic books from the beginning. Nice, nice. I, I love your Marvel story. It's it's very similar to mine, um, especially when you talked about your mom being into soap operas, and that's how yeah. you got started. Um, that was the same for me, and she would, my mom would get the Soap Operas Digest at the counter at the um, grocery store line. Wow. <laughs> And then underneath that was an Archie comic. So um, That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I got started was Archie comics and then worked my way up to to Marvel. And X-Men is by far my favorite um, of the Marvel properties. So I know. I know. I remember when we first met. It was, I'm here, you know, I'm here thinking we were going to bond off of something else. But then you mentioned X-Men. And I was like, okay, let's go. Let's let's (laughs) talk about X-Men. And what I would later learn is, like, you were the first person that I met that really expressed a hardcore love for the 90s X-Men cartoon, but I'm really realizing just for how many people that was their first exposure to the X-Men. So yeah. that that cartoon has really made an impression into the universe. It, it, it seriously did, because 
it, I started reading some X-Men comics, the Uncanny X-Men, um, the Chris Claremont books, but then the, uh, series came out and I was really interested in a lot of the characters and then I really liked Gambit. And Gambit, I just got hooked on from this, the cartoon series. And then I remember, uh, do you remember the X-Men adventure books? Yes, I do. That, and I started reading those. So yes, the, the comic or the cartoon rather, did help um sort of it was the catalyst and triggering my my addiction to to all things x-men so yeah uh, and i think that speaks to a lot of folks as well that that watched the series back then i I wanted to ask you you know you you're a pioneer you're the first black man to become editor for a batman line of comics at dc um being the first at anything what was your experience like and what kind of challenges did you face as a pioneer in your field um, there was, there was an excitement and there was a pressure at the same time because you feel that your actions will either pave the road or destroy it for anybody who comes in back of you. And that's the same way I think it is for any black person who's going to be a leader in the business that, in any given business that your actions will either open the door for the next one or they will use you as the excuse to say, see what happens when you do this. Mm-hmm. So um, being at Milestone really helped prepare me a great deal because, you know, I had the great mentors there of, you know, Dwayne McDuffie, God rest his soul, Michael Davis, Dennis Cowan, and Derek Dingle. And so I was able to walk into DC Comics with a business acumen and a creative acumen that was already informed from working in the business. And I actually started at DC as a temp editor working on the Green Lantern comics, but because I was a temp, I couldn't get any editorial credit. And then that ended, and I worked at Simon Schuster in the Star Trek department. And then I went to visit DC Comics because I wanted to talk to Jordan Gorfinkel at the time. I wanted to pitch him a 10-page Oracle story for Batman Chronicles because Barbara Gordon as Oracle is one of my favorite characters in comic books and will be to the day I die. So I had this 10-page story that I wanted to write. And he was like, okay, that's interesting. He was like, I want to talk to you about something else. And then he said, we'd like you to join the group. And I was like, okay, that kind of trumps my Oracle story. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I went and I went and did that, and it was great. And I started during No Man's Land, which was groundbreaking because it was never anything like that in comics—a real-time, year-long story. And so, for me, the responsibility was to do a good job and to bring on other talented people of color. So, in a way, I kind of felt like Sojourner Truth in that sense. And, <laughs> and I'll, and I'll be honest with you, like straight up, um, um, a black artist who shall remain nameless cause I don't want to embarrass him, but he gave me a Christmas gift one year. And I said, wow, I really appreciate this. You didn't have to do it. And he said, well, you're one of the only two editors who gave me work this year. Wow. And that's when I was like, whoa, you know? So my goal was to do the best job and help bring on some of the best people in comics who weren't getting enough notice. And Mm -hmm. I really feel confident that I did that. And during the time that I was one of the Batman editors, 
I feel like Gotham City was at its apex of diversity. Um, I don't feel like you can look at any other point in the history of the Batman mythos and find it to be as culture-rich. So I was proud to be there at that time and to help make a contribution. Nice. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, Grace? Oh, yeah. So speaking of, so, you know, since, you know, with working at Milestone, what is it, what I guess would be probably like the highlights of being at Milestone and what kind of, um, I guess, experiences uh, have you gotten from that that you kind of like still take with you even today? Wow. I mean, the great thing about Milestone, among other things, is that we were a family mm-hmm. and we all had each other's backs. And every week was a victory. We got the comic books out and like every week was a victory. And I mean, we had no idea we were making history at the, at the time. We knew we were having a lot of fun and there were always these fun discussions or pearls of wisdom that were going around. So I'm trying to think like, okay, if I had to fig- figure out the single best experience I had at Milestone, it would be that it was at Milestone that I got my first um, writing gig published in a comic book. It was Shadow Cabinet number 12. And I remember one time I was at my desk and we were all having, we were all having one of our meetings, like one of our weekly meetings. And Derek Dingle, who was a president of Milestone, Mm-hmm. You know, congratulated me in front of the staff and everyone pulled out a copy of the book and they just, you know, congratulated me on that. And that was really an amazing moment for me because the company had given me so much, but to also give me that, um, they were just so giving. And so what I learned from Milestone above anything else was to give forward mm-hmm. because to learn and to gain and to be selfish, that's not what we're here for. That's not how human civilization thrives. And it's certainly not how um, black people are going to thrive. Mm-hmm. Right. We're not going to thrive by a crabs in the barrel mentality mm-hmm. and we're not going to thrive by keeping it to ourselves. We have to share it. And so um, Milestone taught me to pay it forward. And and I appreciate you, you know, putting out there the, the family aspect because so often you don't really hear too many people like thinking of comics, you know, or in sense that, that family unit. And so being able to like get that and, and feel like somebody had your back and, you know, people were appreciating your work, you know, that's that's got to, you know, feel really good, you know, after just knowing that. Yeah, it was great. Now, the thing is, the thing about family is, family piss each other off, too. Right, So, right. <laughs> I mean, make no, make no mistake, we had some debates, we had some exciting times, and, you know, they weren't all good, but that's the reality of things. And what I think is that, out of any conflict, we came out the other side of the conflict better than we entered it. Mm-hmm, okay. Right. So, so that's the most important thing. If at the, if somewhere down the line, like you can still give each other a pound and hug, mm-hmm. I think I think that's what it comes down to. And sometimes that took years. Gotcha. It took years 
it, you, it took years for some of us to come to some resolutions about each other. Mm-hmm. But we did. And the fact that Milestone as a group and as an idea still exists 22 years later to see the companies we launch mm-hmm. happen, right. that yeah. history is going to jumpstart again. Um, it's a wonderful feeling. And it was an honor to be there. Now, I have one other question for you. So, like, my work deals with um, black female superheroes and so forth in comics. And so I, I did a little digging around and I uh, heard that Rocket is one of your favorite characters from the uh, Milestone comics. And what what about her kind of made it stand out for you to make her kind of one of your faves and why? Um, well, Raquel Irvin um, is a, is a aspiring writer and she's a girl from the streets, but she always had a sense of dignity. Mm-hmm. She would not let herself be judged by where she lived, but she wanted to be judged by her actions and by her aspirations. And the thing about her is that she created Icon. The title yeah. Icon was never about the flying alien in the red suit with the green cape. It was about Raquel Irvin. It was about Rocket. And she wow. created Icon because she is the one that challenged his Booker T. Washington-informed ideology that everyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And basically what she said to him, and this is not verbatim, but it's along the lines, is she said it's easy to pull yourself up by your bootstraps when you have the ability to fly. Right, right. And so she challenged him to get involved in the struggle, and she went back to him with a drawing, and she said, here, your icon, and then he said, well, what's that? And she said, well, that's my costume. I'm Rocket. I'm going to be your partner because I am going to be the constant reminder of why you were doing this. So she was the engine of that heroism, and when you look at black female characters in comics, and let's not lie, there's not an abundance of them. Right. They do not tend to be the engine. They do not tend to be the impetus. They tend to be some kind of a side character, mm-hmm. right? Even even right. Like, Vix, like Vixen. Vixen, throughout most of her time, Vixen from DC Comics, was kind of defined in her connection to Bronze Tiger or in yeah. her connection to JLA Detroit. But Vixen as her own has not really been given the opportunity to shine. Now, that's going to change with the upcoming um, animated animated series, Mm -hmm. and I'm looking forward to that. Um, Another one of my favorite characters in comics is Misty Knight. Oh, yes. Yes. The Dragon. I love me. I love me some Misty, and if someone else thinks they're a better expert than Misty than I am, then it's like, okay, let's let's go, because I don't think you are. Um, (laughs) But... I love her. I love the Daughters of the Dragon. And I feel like Misty was always a character of strength. She was never a victim. Right. You know, she was always a character of strength and conviction and just a combination of a black woman and Colleen Wing, um, half Japanese, half Caucasian. Um, I think that represented just like a great example of female friendship. You know, and so strangely enough, I remember one time 
I was on Twitter with Gail Simone and somebody said something like, they said, Daughters of the Dragon is a remake of Birds of Prey. And I was like, no, you have that wrong. The Daughters yeah. of the Dragon came out in the 70s and the Birds of Prey came out in the 90s. So actually, Misty Knight and Colleen Wing were kind of like the first example, I think, of, you know, that female duo and the interracial duo. So, you know, going back to Rocket, um, I just love her spirit um, and her sense of dignity and identity. And she represents, she represents black youth to me. Definitely. Mm-hmm. You know? Nice. Well, I want to take it to Twitter. We got a question in your bio. I had mentioned that um, during your tenure at D.C., uh, that you oversaw characters such as Detective Crispus Allen, who is now on Gotham. So our question is from Derpy Girl, who wants to know, how happy were you to see Crispus on Gotham? And I'd like to ask, what are your thoughts on Gotham? Yeah, my question, too. <laughs> okay, okay. And um, be honest. Yes. <laughs> nope. Me? Anything other? No. <laughs> I'll be I'll be absolutely honest. First of all, I was thrilled to see Crispus on Gotham and... You know, it goes back to what I said about Milestone, that you have no idea that your actions are making an impact that are going to ripple decades into the future. When I mean, I still remember when the box of, I think his first appearance was Detective Comics 743. And I can still remember getting those comp copies when I'm in the office. And I'm like, okay, cool, we have a black character, a black detective in Gotham now. And there was one before him. Um, Mackenzie Hardcastle Bach, but when we revamped kind of like the Batman line after No Man's Land, we brought in a new character that Greg Rucka and Sean Martinbrook created, Crispus, and I just loved him. I loved the character straight up, so I was thrilled to see him in Gotham, and what I think about Gotham, okay, I must confess, I've only seen one episode so far, but I have a very good reason, and the reason is this. God bless all of you that have the time to see all of these shows when they come out, but I am writing. I am writing my butt off. That's good. I have to catch up on so many shows. It is no joke. So I really need to do like a Gotham binge watch, but I've only seen the first episode. And from the first episode, I mean, I love the way they automatically maintained the Crispus Allen Renee Montoya dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I like the way they, they established the camaraderie of those two and contrasted that against um, Gordon and Bullock. So right. I can already see them setting up the tension okay, there. Well, I look forward um, to seeing how it will run. I have to do it. So I apologize for not being more informed on a television show at this time. No, no, not a problem at all. Look, we're we're geeks live tweeting and watching shows. You're right. out there creating the content that we like to consume and enjoy. So you keep doing you because we enjoy the work that you've provided um, in Thank the DC comic much. universe. Yes, yeah. indeed. Think of it like a partnership. You, you while you're doing your thing, that way we can do our thing. You know, so that's yeah. nice. That's a, I appreciate you looking at it that way. And then another thing is. You know, doing the weekly column for comic book resources, that's always like, okay, what are you going to write about next? What are you going to write about next? And right. it's funny because 
tomorrow's column, I just figured out what I was going to write about yesterday. So, <laughs> like, 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 sometimes I know a week in advance, and sometimes it's like, okay, like, bolt of lightning, like, come out of the sky and hit me so I can get going. So I'm like, okay, I got it. I know what I'm going to write about. So as a matter of fact, once we're done talking, I am going to go back to work, and I am going to write that column. <laughs> Nice. Well, um, you know, in, in addition to the work that you've done in the comics world, you're also the co-founder of Verge Entertainment. Can you tell us what is Verge Entertainment and what is your role there? Verge Entertainment is a production company that I started with partners Sean Martinbro, who's the illustrator of Thief of Thieves for Images Skybound Division, and that's their monthly crime series written by Andy Diggle. Andy Diggle, who's the writer of Green Arrow Year One, which basically informs the hell out of the Arrow TV show. And my partner, Milo Stone, who comes from a video game background and a technology background. So the three of us created Verge Entertainment, and we've developed a number of original ideas and intellectual properties for all platforms, whether it's graphic novels or prose. Um, live action or animated television, the internet, the small screen, the big screen. And so my job there is I'm the head writer. So basically, the three of us will come up with ideas, but it's my job to basically do most of the writing. So when it comes to the development of material, when it comes to if we're going to do something in prose, I would be writing the novel. If we're going to do something in television, I would write the pilot, teleplay, and things of that nature. So I'm the head writer of the company, and all of our creative ideas funnel through me, and then I put it out in the best form possible to represent the company. Nice. Wow. That's awesome. And, you know, we, you. Talk, we talked a little bit about Milestone Media, and you started off as an intern and worked your way up, um, working with, of course, the late, great, uh, Dwayne McDuffley, as well as founding members, Dennis Cowan and Derek T. Dingle. What was the best thing about working at Milestone and what was the most challenging? The best thing about working at Milestone was learning something new every day. And I'll give you an example. Um, and this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with comics, but it totally taught me something. Um, one time, Dwayne McDuffie was playing some music in his office and I recognized it as a beat that was used in Ice Cube's death certificate. So I walk in and I say, hey man, you listen to Ice Cube too? And he was like, this isn't Ice Cube, this is Parliament. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And you know, he was like, yeah, this is who Ice Cube sampled. So... Then I was like, oh, so dude just basically like changed my life by introducing me to Parliament. So that kind of crazy stuff happened. Or um, I remember one time Dwayne was giving a talk to some people, and he was talking about characters. And he said, if you put Batman, Daredevil, Captain America in the same situation, and any two of them solve it the same way, you're not writing character. You're writing plot. Mm-hmm. Because no two people are the same. They all come from different points of view. And no two people solve a problem exactly the same way. Right. And, yeah. you know, a gem like that is something that as a writer, I just take with me. 
and it's something that I can share with other people. So you had you had gems being shared by these people every day. Um, Dennis Cowan, I would hear him sharing his knowledge with artists. Michael Davis sharing his knowledge with me about business. Derek Dingle sharing his knowledge with me about business. I mean, Derek Dingle, I mean, if he's listening, I'm going to embarrass him here. But he took me to Macy's on 34th Street, and he bought me my first blazer as an adult. Wow. (laughs) Straight up. He bought me my first blazer. He taught me about buttons, and he said to me that you have to be able to get into the door. I can help you get through the door. Once you get through the door, it's on you. But I can help you get through the door. And so my sense of fashion is in part influenced by that day when he did that. So that would be the best thing about it. The most challenging thing, that's really tricky. Um, hmm. I think the most challenging thing is when you know that everyone is looking at you and when you know that a number of people are looking at you to fail. Right. And so you don't want to give them the satisfaction. They expect you to fail, so you want to make sure that you put out your best every time. And, you know, sometimes it it won't be. Sometimes you're going to spike and sometimes you're going to dip. But if you always have the best intentions, then you can stand by it. So I think that was the biggest challenge. And um, I was at Milestone when what we'll consider the phase one of Milestone ended when they stopped publishing monthly comics in 1997. And, you know, I I racked up Hardware 50, which was my last comic. And it was kind of bittersweet, sweet, but I said, hey, you know, I'm going to end this book. I'm going to do it right. And then I'm going to go on. And it was good to see Milestone come back again and again later and to know that that was not the end. That was just the end of that phase. Mm-hmm. Well, um, one question I have, um, I wanted to add this question in since this just dropped on Friday, April 10th, the new Daredevil series on Netflix. Have you seen the series yet? And what is your thoughts about sort of this new medium that's happening um, with respect to Netflix and online streaming content and of course now the new Static Shock series. It's a digital web series that we're seeing um, that's going to be dropping soon. What is your thoughts about uh, changing the medium from what we usually have been used to seeing feature films and even episodic television to Netflix and, and YouTube? Okay, well, I have seen the first three episodes of Daredevil and I love it. I love that it's taking the story slowly. It's patient. The Mm -hmm. fact that you don't even meet Kingpin for the first few episodes, I love the way they are rolling the story out. I love the way they're rolling out the development of Matt Murdock. I love the chemistry between Matt Murdock and Rosario Dawson's character, Claire. Um, I love the building of a mythology that when we meet Matt, he doesn't yet have the three level brownstone and Nelson and Murdoch is not already this formidable, um, law enterprise. So I love seeing it from the beginning. 
Um, I love the way it's written. I love the way it's shot. There's a fight sequence at the end of the second episode, which, as a storyteller, I'm going to have to rewatch that like five times. Yeah. Because yeah. it's just really amazing that they did that. Um, the expansion of the medium past our television boxes with Netflix so that you can watch it on any device is great and it's necessary. And it allows the stories to reach more people. And the fact that Static Shock is going to get the same treatment like Daredevil and the upcoming Luke Cage television show, mm-hmm. that Static Shock is going to be able to reach that many people is a wonderful thing that, again, started back in the 90s when these men came together and created Milestone. And, um, you know, on that note, respect to the fifth founder of Milestone, Christopher Priest, who did not stick around by the time the company the company started releasing the comic books, but he was one of the five original founders. And much respect to Robert Washington III, who passed away a few years ago and was one of the founding static writers. And his genius made such an impression on the mythology that whatever we see in that static shock show, part of that is going to um, echo what he imbued into the mythos. So I am looking forward to seeing Static Shock in that format. And what's really interesting about that format is since you don't have commercials, since you can binge watch it, there are different ways to take advantage of storytelling. And this is something that Jeff Loeb, head of television at Marvel, really spoke about recently with Daredevil. And so it's good to know that as a storyteller, you can take advantage of the way the stories are absorbed by a mass audience to uh, manipulate pacing and to heighten drama. Now, are you involved in the Static Shock series at all? I am not involved at this point. Um, What I tell people is that I will be working on collaborative ventures with Milestone. Mm Mm-hmm. And those will be announced in due time. But right now, the relaunch is totally on them because while I am alumni of the company, I am not one of the partners of the company. So what we do together will be collaborative efforts. And it would be my hope that that would extend to Verge Entertainment because Verge Entertainment was in part born of Milestone because Mm -hmm. Sean Martinborough, worked at Milestone as well. And that's where I met him. Sean and I, our longstanding relationship goes back to Milestone. And the fact that he came up with the idea to create Verge Entertainment, I think Milestone showed us that it could be done. So for me, and I imagine for Sean, it would really be great if Milestone and Verge Entertainment can work together to help expand the landscape of diversity and entertainment and comics. So that's the future that I am looking forward to. Nice. All right, Grace. Oh, um, kind of going back to the Netflix thing. Do you think that like Netflix is kind of going to become the, the norm that more people watch that versus televisions being that there's a lot of, you know, um, regular original series that are coming to play on there, you know, not just even in the comics, but you have like Orange is the New Black and so forth, or even 
including Amazon, um, Amazon into that as well. Do you think that whole medium is kind of like taking rise and may kind of like push television or give television a run for its money, so to speak? I do believe that it will become the dominant means by which we absorb entertainment. And I think the fact that HBO just did a major move by offering an online subscription separate from cable providers speaks to that. I think you're going to see more of that. And the fact of the matter is people are in motion more than they are stationary or at least more than they are at their homes. So they take in their entertainment more in transit than they do in front of a box. Like, I'm not going to front. I was doing some laundry earlier, and I watched the third episode of Daredevil at the laundry with my headset. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, straight up. Like, everyone else was, like, doing what they're doing, and I was like, nope, I'm watching Daredevil. <laughs> okay, 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 my stuff is done. Okay, now it's going into the dryer. Now I'm going to start watching Daredevil again. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's just me. So imagine just throughout the world how people's behavior is replicating that kind of a model. So I would have to say that is going to become the dominant model, and and it's going to be very interesting, but it's also going to open up a lot of opportunities for storytellers. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. Yep. So now with being that you've worked on both the business and creative side of comics and Kind of like, I guess, where, if you had to one day choose, what side would you choose to be on? If I had to choose, I would choose creative. Because okay. in my heart, I'm a storyteller. Okay. But I love I love business. And I guess the reason I would choose creative over business is If I was a writer and I had to find a business ally, I could do that. But if I was a business ally and had to find a writer, to find a writer whose vision aligns with yours, and also, just as a writer, like, there has to be that spark, Mm -hmm. that thing in you that wants to tell a story and get it out, or that thing in you that wants to explore characters. And the spark cannot be taught. Um, Training can be taught. You can learn the rules so you can bend them, but that thing in you that wants to express, that mm-hmm. is something else. That is that is elusive. It's spiritual. So that is not something that can be manufactured. So that is why I would have to be I would have to be a writer if I had to choose. But I'm glad I don't have to choose. Right. And what I and what I tell a lot of creators, and this is important, is I know it's very tempting to want to do it all yourself, but if you can't, if there are things that you need done but you can't do them, go out and find allies. If you are not good at marketing and PR, find a PR person. Mm-hmm. If you are not good at business acumen, find a business person. Um, find a mentor. Find someone to teach you these things. Find someone who believes in what you want to do and will help you because if you try to do it on all yourself and you crash and burn, then it was for naught, mm-hmm. right? So you want to give yourself the best possible chance of success. Now, I was fortunate in that by way of the Milestone Founders, I got such a multi-layered, balanced education 
that I have the creative side and I have the business side. Now, I'm also a Libra Scorpio cusp, so maybe there's an astrological element <laughs> to it, you know, to be honest. But, um, you know, not everyone has that, and you have to know your strengths, and you have to know what you cannot do, and you have to admit it and say, okay, I need to find allies. And you I know. appreciate you, you, you saying that because that is so important. I mean, uh, I, I can even speak to that just like being in touch with, uh, I'm going to give a plug to Jamie here, you know, being able to come into the world of black girl nerds has kind of like opened many doors and you're not very grateful to that. So I, I appreciate you, you know, recognizing and acknowledging that and, you know, hopefully other people kind of like take on to that same thing because you can't really do it alone. And why would you want to do it alone either? So, you know, so. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's true. That's that's just ego. Yeah, <laughs> it is. You're right. You're absolutely right. Um, I'm going to take it to Twitter. This is from Comic Book Bros. Uh, they have a question for you about the Black Panther movie. Mr. Illage, okay. do you think Reginald Hudlin would be a great director for Black Panther? Of course. <laughs> there's, there's, like, like, there's no, there's no think. Like, you know, you talked about pioneers earlier. Reggie is a pioneer in the filmmaking world and Reggie wrote the Black Panther. He has an understanding of that character that many of his peers do not share and he is perfectly qualified Mm -hmm. to direct the film. So that is not even in debate. Yep. I I mean, I agree with that. We um, are still working by the way, because comic book bros have been tweeting me a lot about, uh, the podcast that we were going to have for Milestone. So we are still working on scheduling a date to have them come on the show and, and do that podcast. And certainly feel free to listen in live and ask that question again. All right. Um, all right. <laughs> so I want to personally thank you, Joseph, um, for featuring me and, and BGN in the color barrier on comic book resources. Um, I, you know, was, I, I thought that was a really great um, article that you wrote featuring what, uh, the BGN community is about. And then, you know, we both shared our love for X-Men, of course. Um, mm-hmm. But can you tell me about the color barrier and how it got started? Okay. Um, well, first off, thank you for doing it. And I want to give credit where it's due. I learned about you through my fiance, Lulu. And she said, you should interview this person. And I read, and I was like, holy crap, I need to interview her. So. <laughs> You know, I, I, I went and I reached out to you and we had a good discussion and you were willing to do it. And, and, and I'll tell you something, and this is not a knock. This is a reality and it just goes to, you know, a debate for another time. But you're one of the few women to whom I've offered or said, hey, would you like to do an interview? Who said yes? What? Wow. Are you, you serious? You, Afua Richardson... And Kelly Sue DeConnick, whom I've not gotten to interview yet, but I'm working on that, I'm working on that, um, were the only ones. There were some people who basically, like, said no to me or said, yeah, I'll get back to you. and never did. And I was like, okay, that's cool. So you were my second um, um, woman interviewee. Of Will Richardson was the first, but, you know, I want to thank you because you've been fighting the fight since before it was fashionable. And that must have been really intimidating, but you planted your flag in the sand and you basically led the way. So 
thank you for your courage. Thank you. And, um, That's shocking. In, yeah, very much so. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, I, I know, I know. What, what can I say, you know? Um, but it, the color barrier started because Jonah Weiland, who's the executive producer of Comic Book Resources, reached out to me, um, called me out of the blue on my cell phone, and said, hey, we'd like to do something for Black History Month. Um, we'd like to do a column, and your name was presented to me by a number of people, and it just so happens I'm going to be in the New York area in a few days, so how about we meet up and talk? And we did, and we spoke for like an hour and a half, and then after that, I was like, let's go. And originally, it was supposed to be just for Black History Month, so that was February of 2014, and then it extended for a few more months, and I was able to interview more people, talk about more things, and then we wrapped it up. And after we wrapped it up, he came to me and he said, let's make this a regular thing. He said, I love what you're doing. We're adding something to the community and we're having a discussion here, which is really important and I want to keep it going. So I said, okay, let's go. And the color barrier ended up becoming the mission because the color barrier was really about talking about these things, but the mission is more about pushing the issues forward and pushing the idea of empowerment forward because what I am tired of is I'm tired of us begging Marvel and DC and these other companies for scraps. I'm tired of the where's my 40 acres and a mule because let's keep it real. We as consumers are the ones that empower the companies. Me buying X-Men for decades is why there are these X-Men films. Mm -hmm. That's not magic. That's commerce. So as a black consumer, I shouldn't have to ask you to respect me. I'm telling you, you should. Now, if you don't, I'm going to go do my business anyway. But I'm letting you know that I know I empower you. And there should be reciprocity. Now, is a black Captain America reciprocity? In part. Mm-hmm. That's, that's part reciprocity. Um, more needs to be done. But at least, but at least that's something. So, the color barrier was really the regularity of the discussion and the mission is the empowerment narrative or the examination of different things. Like I recently did a column in which I talked about the black Captain America and the female Thor. And from a business standpoint, the female Thor has a multi-level apparatus that supports her existence and promotion. But Captain America is basically twisting in the wind. Mm. And what that said to me as a consumer is I need to help give Captain America that advantage. I need to buy Captain America every month. I need to help buttress it because at some point Sam Wilson will no longer be Captain America. But if we buy it and if we comment on it and if we support it, it'll be, more than a footnote. It would be this indelible part of the mythology and of the corporate history of Marvel Comics. And so 
that's really what's going on with the column now. And so I really enjoy the discussions. I enjoy talking with people about it on Twitter and Facebook, even if they don't agree with me. Like I had someone check me about a month and a half ago because I wrote a column about Marvel's Storm comic and why I think it's not selling more. And this person on Twitter checked me. She was like, hey, um, by the way, none of the Storm fans were happy about Storm and Black Panther being married. Now, I don't know if that's in its essence true, but I think what she was really speaking to is that the way it was executed by Marvel Comics was less than ideal. Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. And because the way it was executed was less than ideal, its existence is abhorrent to Storm and what Storm represents. Mm-hmm. And so even though, you know, this stand kind of checked me online, it's like, okay, I will accept that and I learn from it, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's part of the risk of putting yourself out there. Not everyone is going to agree with you, but that's okay, that's fine. But at least we're talking about it. And we're not talking about it just at work or we're not just talking about it, you know, like on the phone. Like there's a weekly discussion and we're talking about these issues. And so I'm glad to be contributing to that. I'm glad that Comic Book Resources gives me the opportunity to do that. And I love being able to talk with people about these issues. You also um, had a conversation. I'm going to go to a Twitter question here. This is from a man called Hawk. Um, He wants you to give some more thoughts on the infamous Cage Max series that you briefly mentioned in your last column. Okay. Um, That was a period of time which was a low point for the representation of Luke Cage. Mm. Luke Cage has gone through a lot of evolution since he was created in the 1970s. And that series, with respect to the talent of Brian Azzarello, um, because he's a genius when it comes to like 100 bullets and things like that, but that portrayal of Luke Cage represented an evolutionary step backwards and it diminished the character and I'm not going to front I own the book I read the book once I was done the book with the book by no means that I give it away or throw it in the garbage it's it's part of the character's full mythology so I need that as a reference point um, so I did not like the way Luke was represented in that series um, I didn't like the way Luke was represented in the first arc of the Alias series by Brian Michael Bendis, where he was basically like, he was like, you know, the white women's fantasy. He was like this big, black, muscular bug who like, who gives it to you real hard in the bed and then wants you to leave. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like, I'm like, really? That's what, what, what decade is this? Mm-hmm. That is what mm-hmm. Luke Cage is. Now, mind you, Luke Cage has come a long way since then, but why did he have to get knocked back down to the bottom so that he would have to climb twice as far to get back to the top? So they made him like a Mandingo kind of character. Exactly. Yeah, that's what that's what he was in the first arc of Alias. Now, mind you, Brian Michael Bendis has really done a lot to evolve Luke Cage, as has... Um, you know, I guess whenever Reggie Hudlin, I think, may have gotten his hands on Luke Cage during the Black Panther run, because that was one thing that Reggie did. Like, he really used Black Panther 
as this gateway to the other black characters in the Marvel Universe, like Brother Voodoo and so on and so forth. Um, although I wish that more black writers had been involved in the transformation of Luke Cage in the last six years, but I'm hoping going forward to see more black writers involved in the further evolution of Luke Cage. So I'm really happy about where the character is now in terms of his visibility because of the upcoming Netflix series next year. I'm thrilled that um, Chio Hadari Coker is going to be the showrunner. I mean, I love Southland, and I have yet to watch Ray Donovan, but as I said, I have yet to watch most of the shows that y'all get to watch <laughs> on a regular basis, so I've got a serious backlog going, but I really have high hopes for the show, and I'm looking forward to seeing what happens with Luke Cage going further. And just on a personal note, Luke Cage being married to Jessica Jones is something I really like because I'm also part of an interracial couple. My fiance Lulu is white. So I feel like that archetype in Marvel comics is also very timely to what's going on in America today. Mm -hmm. And It'll be very interesting to see Luke and Jessica as a couple going forward in this yes. world, and hopefully, and the fiction. fingers crossed that we will see Misty Knight between yes, the Luke yes. Cage series yes, and yes. Iron Fist. Please give me <laughs> some Misty. I mean, but you know what? But do it right because if right. you don't do Misty right, right don't don't do put her at all. Don't, yeah, mm-hmm. don't do her. But I got we got to at least annoyed. see her. It it would be it would almost be like you know you're just completely dismissing who Misty Knight is and who she represents if she was not a part of either the Luke Cage series or the Iron Fist series coming up. So Exactly, especially since Misty's origin relates to Tony Stark, because I believe that right? Stark Industries developed the bionic arm that she has as a prototype. Yep. That's right, that's right. Yep. So now that we have the collective Marvel Cinematic Universe, and Marvel is basically claiming dominance from the spaceways to the streets. There's no reason that Misty Knight cannot meet Tony Stark. There's no reason that a New York cop named Misty Knight cannot lose her arm in some kind of gunfight and Stark Industries as some kind of outreach program to heroes in popular cities like New York develop a bionic arm for some good public relations. This can easily happen now. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um Joe Caseta, the chief creator of uh, Marvel Entertainment, has made it very clear that a lot of the properties that we see in the Netflix series, including Daredevil, um, we will see on the big screen as well. So ah, um yes, yes. I'm I'm really excited about that. Uh we had a question on Twitter. I wanted to bring this up because you have a book that you're working on. When is Ren gonna drop and when can we find out more information about where we can buy it and, and check it out? Wow. Okay. Well, first off, I'm very appreciative for everyone's interest in the book because, I mean, it's a really important story for me and co-writer Sean Martinbro and illustrator Gray Williamson because it takes place during the Harlem Renaissance from 1925 to 1926. It's about a young bass player from Augusta, Georgia, with dreams of becoming a big-time musician, moving to Harlem, and he meets um, a girl who's an aspiring dancer from Harlem at a time when dancing was not 
really a viable career. And it's about their romance um, during this time of amazing creativity coming out of the black community. And it's a really big project. It's like 200 plus pages. And I just wrapped up the second draft of the script. So you're not going to be seeing the book for a while. And so what I ask is for people to be patient and to trust that when it comes out, it's going to be good. And it's going to be good because we spent a lot of time on it. I spent a lot of time researching it. It's gone through multiple incarnations. And one thing that I was reminded of when I was looking at the hardcover for Scalped, which was a Vertigo series written by Jason Allen, who now writes the Mighty Thor comic book, is the first issue that came out, the first draft of the script that he wrote was totally different. And that's when I said, oh, it's not just me. Like, I'm not the only one that the first draft is not going to be the reality. It happens more than we realize. So the run is taking so much time because it's really more important than seven Superman comics stitched together. You know, it's history, and there's a lot of work that goes into it. And then First Second, who is our publisher, and they are known for their award-winning books, um, one of which was American Born Chinese from Gene Wen Yang, and they just won some awards recently. I think one of their graphic novels won the Caldecott Award. Um, the senior editor there, Callista Brill, is really working with us to make this the best book possible. It's something that she really wanted for their imprint. So I don't want to say when it's going to come out. I don't think it's my place. But right now we're super close to a final script, and then the art will begin. But that is basically what has prevented me from having a life for the most (laughs) part. But it's good to get in front of the computer and just, like, go to Pandora and go to the John Coltrane station and just disappear and write this stuff. And it's an honor to be able, as a black person, to tell part of the black narrative Mm -hmm. as opposed to what's happening a lot in mainstream comics where the black superhero narrative is rarely told by by black writers. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, um, we're, it's time for us to wrap up. First of all, thank you so much um, for coming on the show. You dropped so many gems tonight and a lot of folks were really eager with comments and questions, um, having you on. So thank you. I just want, um, you to just give us quick shout outs where we can find out what you're working on and, uh, social media shout outs and your website. So where we can find more about what Joseph Illage is up to. Okay. All right. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And it's been great talking with you all. And it was an honor to finally make it to the BGN podcast. So <laughs> great. And um, so let's see where you can find me. Well, every Monday between 6 o'clock and 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time is when my weekly column on diversity, The Mission, drops. And my bio is at the end of that. My company is Verge Entertainment. So that is verge.tv. And on Twitter, I am Joseph P. Illage. On Facebook, I am Joe Illage. And LinkedIn, Joseph Philip Illage. I have not been paying enough attention to my Instagram and Tumblr, and I need <laughs> to get back to that. And um, 
You'll find out more about the rent as time goes by. And then another project that I'm starting work on now from a company called Scout Comics is Solar Man. And Solar Man is basically going to be a 21st century reinvention of a 90s white character that was written by Stan Lee, but we're going to make the character black now. And because of that, Mm. we're going to be able to tell an adventure story, but we're also going to be able to tap into some of the social issues of what's happening in black America today. So that's going to be fun. And that is actually going to be coming out this summer. So as we get closer to that, I will speak about that. But basically I'm easy to find across social media and I think I'm on it actually more than I'm not. So I look forward to talking to anybody. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Grace, for co-hosting. Thank you. Next week, we will have guest Baratunde Thurston coming on the show. He's the founder of Cultivated Wit, author of How to Be Black, former uh, writer, contributor of The Onion. So tune in next Sunday night, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. My co-host, Theolonious Legend of the Blurred Book Club and Black Comics Chat will be along with me to... Uh, to co-host on that show. So thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you again, Joseph, so, so much. And you are invited to come back anytime. Yes, thank Thank you. Thank you, Jamie, and thank you, Grace. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right, guys, you have a good night. Bye. Bye. You too. Bye. Finally, I'm finally free. Finally, I'm finally me. Finally, I'm finally free.